Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, August 27th. We begin with a look at next week's return to school in the province. We speak with Jason Schilling, president of the Alberta Teachers Association, on how teachers are feeling about heading back to class. Then we continue the conversation on the new school year. We hear further details on the online hub being offered by the CBE and how classroom sizes will be affected with thousands of students learning from home. Masks have been a hot topic through the coronavirus crisis. There's been a lot of misinformation surrounding their effectiveness and even the impact they have on our breathing. We do some mask myth-busting with a University of Alberta respirologist. And finally, a look at women in politics during the pandemic. We speak with a former MP and senior advisor from Ryerson University on the unique phenomenon of female politicians moving to the forefront during the time of crisis. 8-12 on the morning news, days away, the start of school 2020. Going to look a lot different on the other end of the weekend. We're joined now by the president of the ATA, the Alberta Teachers Association, Jason Schilling, to discuss how the organization is feeling about the start of school quickly approaching from online schooling, how teachers are feeling, and uh, safety concerns. Good morning to you, Jason. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Well, thank you for taking the time this morning. So, well, let's hit the ground running and, and ask about what you're hearing from teachers as the day gets closer. I know that administration has been in for, for quite some time. I think teachers are filtering in, if not, have been in for a couple of days. What are you hearing from your members? Well, I'm hearing from members that they are, they're still concerned about some of the aspects of the return to school plans, such as social distancing and class size. Um, I'm hearing from teachers how they're setting up their classrooms right now and how they're supposed to... Um, you know, new social distancing in a classroom that has 30 students in it. And they're just, they're trying to wrap their heads around what that'll look like in the fall. Jason, how much say do the teachers get? For for us, you know, to look at it from our perspective is one thing, but behind the scenes, how much say do teachers get in terms of what they, what they can do with their classroom and how they can try to best protect themselves and their students, most importantly? Or is that really kind of mandated by the board to them? Well, the government makes the plan, and then the boards are are charged with enacting the plan, the scenario that came down. Um, Teachers have, you know, they get their class lists, and they get their classrooms, and they're told this is what uh, you need to do in terms of the protocols that have been coming down with the scenario as well. Um, And all of that came really kind of quickly when you think about it in the big picture, because the plan wasn't released until July 21st. Um, A lot of schools have been closed. They've been cleaning them or preparing them for the fall. So teachers are just coming into it now and trying to figure out what are the protocols, how does this affect my classroom, my teaching style, my lessons that I'm going to do, and it's a lot to take care of in a matter of a couple of days. Jason, we have more clarity as far as how many Albertan students or Calgary Calgary students specifically will be uh, taking the online option. So I'm wondering from the ATA perspective, how does this work for teachers? Do do, uh, teachers have an option to choose to teach online or is this uh, something that is uh, kind of handed out on a school by school basis? I know that boards have been interacting with teachers to see, because um, there's a certain amount of teachers that uh, have under health, underlying health risks or in, they're immune compromised and returning to the class with COVID-19 is just not safe for them. So they are working remotely, but there's also teachers that will opt to remote, work remotely as well. I know boards are, as they're getting these final numbers of what with how many students are going to be working in class and remotely, it's changed everything. I've talked to teachers just yesterday that what they thought they were they're going to start teaching next Tuesday has completely changed, and they're not sure what they will be teaching um, in just a matter of days uh, because of the numbers have, have shifted and morphed. And I know that school boards and schools need to make some some quick decisions here right away. 
It was good news that came from the federal government with some more money that will be going to schools across the country to uh, make sure that kids are, are safe at school and teachers obviously included in that. Will that trickle down to the teachers and or, or in terms of being able to support them with, you know, hand sanitizer and and masks and so on in the classroom? Or does it do you know at this point how that will be, if, uh, you know, kind of handed out around the schools? I think the government still needs to think about that, but it's not a question of my mind. Is Should that money trickle down to schools? It, that money should trickle down to schools. We need to take the should out of that equation. Um, we need to start investing in adding more people into our buildings to address class size issues by adding more teachers. Let's hire back the EAs that were laid off um, earlier this year so that they can support teachers and students, whether they were work, they're working remotely or in class, and especially our special needs students who've been out of school for months. Um, we need to make sure that they are uh, supported going in, and custodians as well. We need support to make sure that our schools are clean and sanitized throughout the course of the day and in the evening so that we can make sure that any kind of spread of COVID-19 is mitigated as best as possible. Good stuff. Thank you for your time this morning, Jason. You bet. Thanks very much. That is Jason Schelling, president of the Alberta Teachers Association. I'm wondering if you're listening and you're hearing the program this morning and you're a teacher, what are your thoughts? It's kind of a big deal. It's been five months Mm -hmm. since the traditional format of being in class was taking place. And if you're a teacher, have you pivoted? Are you going to be teaching online now and you thought you might be making your return? And I know a lot of teachers are, well, I shouldn't say a lot. I know some that are having to sort of teach courses that they might not normally have taught before too because they're trying to limit uh, the kids moving mm-hmm. around and instead are having the teachers move through the classes. And sometimes that means they're teaching something that they normally wouldn't teach. So uh, how are teachers? Yeah, it's a great question. How are teachers? How are educators? Anybody in that world? How are you feeling as we get closer to the date? Yeah, feel free. Text line always open. Send us a note, 403 403- 974-8255. It's 817. Time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Just one traffic light from the mountains. Deerfoot Trail out of the northeast, a nine-minute drive southbound off the QE2 down towards Memorial. If you're thinking about grabbing Métis Trail instead, uh, it looks pretty slow between Stony Trail and Country Hills Boulevard. So definitely want to stick to Deerfoot this morning if you're coming in from Airtree. Also seeing a slight slowdown on southbound Stony Trail around the 96th Avenue turnoff. So that's just a little bit of a slowdown. Nothing too major, though. Also seeing those northbound delays on Deerfoot as you make your way up towards Southland Drive. Want to add a few minutes to your commute if that's on your route. And then over in the northwest, we're still seeing some pretty big slowdowns on southbound Stony Trail, starting at Nose Hill Drive all the way down onto eastbound 16th Avenue. That's where you're going to find intermittent ramp closures uh, while the crews cross the roadway. Visit Shoppers Drug Mart from Saturday, August 29th to Friday, September 4th. And enjoy big savings during the super sale. Save big, leave happy. For the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Brady Howard. 819 now and registration for the hub online learning option for CBE students closed on Monday. Just over 21,000 students registered. So what will this option of learning look like? How will the CBE accommodate the high number of students learning from home now? With all the latest and the questions hopefully answered for us, we're joined this morning by Superintendent School Improvement with the Calgary Board of Education, Joanne Pittman. Hi, Joanne. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Lots of questions, I'm sure, coming your way from, from parents, from educators, for sure. So uh, were you surprised by the number of students that are now registered to, to go online? 
You know, actually, I'm not surprised. Uh, certainly, we've been hearing from families uh, a whole range of concerns that they've had about in-person learning, and we know it's important for families to be able to make decisions uh, for that that is best for their families. And uh, given the volume of questions we had been receiving over the course of the summer, when we opened registration, uh, I would say that I was not surprised, though it is interesting where some of the grade configurations, uh, we saw a higher enrollment in some than others. Well, with 21,000 and, you know, the percentage is, what, 16% of total enrollment, is that going to be a large enough number to uh, increase some space in these schools and and, lend a way to maybe more social distancing in the classrooms? In, certainly in, in many of our schools, there are some pretty concentrated numbers of enrollments who are enrolled in hub that will change the space available in our schools. I would remind people that it's also possible for students to return again in February. So there are points of change. And as we're confirming those registrations uh, this Monday, our final numbers will be complete. We're going to then be working immediately and on a very tight timeline with our schools to make sure that we're able to adjust uh, some of those in-person classes as well. And uh, absolutely, in, in some of our schools, there are going to be different types of spaces available, which will be of benefit to them. You know, we got a text on something that you t- just touched on there. Um, you know, uh, the question is, it looks like tens of thousands of students will be online schooling from home. Doesn't that mean classrooms will be smaller and more spread out. Is that in fact the case? Because we've been hearing that, you know, some of those teachers now will have to be pulled from classes and moved to the hub teaching. Yes, to be clear, uh, in terms of staffing this volume of students, we do not have the resources to hire all of the hundreds of new positions that it would require. What we are doing, and the design of the hub was also intended to help families remain connected to their home school that they're registered for normally as much as possible. So wherever we're able to uh, assign staff to deliver online learning to groups of students who are from their home school, that is one of the goals because it's not only access to the online environment, it's also an important connection back to a regular routine, even though they won't be in person in school. So that will mean that there will be changes to um, some of the teaching staff who are available to deliver in-person teaching. However, there will be increased spaces available and uh, less uh, restrictions in rooms in certain schools based on the percentage of students enrolled in Hub. Online or in class, hitting the ground running next week. Thanks so much for your time, Joanne. Thank you. Take care. That is Joanne Pittman, Superintendent, School Improvement with the Calgary Board of Education. At 642, many of the adjustments that have had to be made to teaching and learning in order to adapt to COVID-19 have shown the way to a different and maybe even a better version of higher education. So what have we learned? Let's find out from a professor and the Dean of Engineering at McMaster University, Ishwar Puri. Good morning, Professor. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. So, I mean, we may have lost the ability to learn face-to-face in some cases, particularly university and college, but you say we've gained in other ways. Can you tell us how? Sure. Um, I don't think that there is a replacement for face-to-face learning, but I certainly think that the new model of blended learning that will emerge after the pandemic is helped by some of the innovations that we've created very rapidly over the last four months. We've put many courses online. We've used gamification platforms, virtual reality, and we've also been able to virtualize experiential learning in many ways. 
uh, we've been able to engage students using various platforms that are virtual where they can come, they can collaborate, they can meet each other. And this is also allowing us to reimagine how classical learning takes place and is assessed. Right now, we use the credit hour as a surrogate for learning. But, you know, when students don't show up in class, the credit hour is now passe. Mm-hmm. So not so much measuring in time. What would we be looking at to quantify education and uh, the amount of time a, a student has, you know, uh, poured into a specific uh, topic? Absolutely. So that is a, a very important observation. The credit hour essentially says that you've been in class for, let's say, three hours a week. And so you've had three credit hours of learning. But now when learning is blended, it's partially online, it's partially independent, uh, the credit hour is no longer a surrogate for learning. Rather, what we have to focus on are the skills and competencies that students must have to survive in a post-pandemic world. Are they creative? Can they design solutions? Can they integrate different disciplines? Do they know that innovation has to have some kind of sustainable business basis Do they have multicultural skills? And do they have a social consciousness? Because something like a pandemic is an existential challenge, much in the same way that the opioid crisis or clean water or climate change, as a matter of fact, are also existential crises. So skills and competencies now become more important, and we have to find ways to assess them and allow employers to learn how we've assessed them so that they can truly benefit from the talent that they are seeking. Do you think this may, Professor, be the way we continue to do things into the future, even when we're through and out the other side of this pandemic? Yeah, I started off saying that uh, there is no uh, substitute for face-to-face learning because the human will always be important. If we are not in the proximity of humans, particularly a diverse group of humans, we will not be able to understand the emotional cues, the cultural underpinnings of what makes society work. So I certainly think that face-to-face learning and face-to-face engagement is not going to go away and should not go away. However, much of the stuff that happens in lectures is, is, is frankly sometimes boring. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's just an information dump. Why don't we take that information dump online in a virtual environment and also allow people to work outside of scheduled class hours where they can work in virtual chat rooms, using the kind of video conferencing facilities we have right now, where they can meet in small groups, large groups, discuss things. So I think that blended model of learning, both virtual and face-to-face, is going to become more important. There's no doubt about it. Very interesting stuff, and I guess we'll see, moving post-pandemic, how many of these changes come with us. Thank you for your time very much, Professor. Of course. Thank you very much for having me. That is Ishwar K. Puri, Dean of Engineering and Professor at McMaster University. At 647, it's time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman, Calgary's newest and best master-planned community. 
Well, construction continues at Glenmore Trail and Sarcy Trail through the southwest. Right now, we're not seeing any major delays, but there are speed restrictions and lane realignments through the area. You're going to need an extra heads up going through there. An eight-minute drive, though, on eastbound Glenmore from Sarcy Trail out towards Deerfoot. Also through the southwest, construction now underway at 162nd Avenue between 6th Street and Summercrest Street. There'll be lane closures there until about 7 o'clock this evening with speeds down to 50. So a heads up if that's on your route. And also through the north or the southeast, rather, construction now starting up on southbound 52nd Street at 23rd Avenue with a right lane closure until 3. Calgary moved to TELUS and get 227% faster download speeds than Shaw's Freedom Network. Based on open signal independent analysis, visit TELUS.com slash network. For the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Brady Howard. What a groundbreaking week this has been in North America. In the U.S., Senator Kamala Harris has been nominated as the running mate for Joe Biden. Christia Freeland here in Canada named as the first woman finance minister in our country. Both Harris and Freeland assume their positions in the midst of troubling times, leading some to ask, why does it take a crisis often to promote women? To discuss this a little further, we're joined this morning by senior advisor to the Dean of Arts at Ryerson University, Peggy Nash. Good morning, Peggy. Good morning. How are you? Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. You know, is that what it takes? Is this how we're going to get things under control in this world? We uh, we elevate <laughs> the women, bring them in to take over? Well, uh, I wrote an article about how it seems that when there is a crisis, uh, that's when women seem to get pushed to the front. And usually they do a pretty good job of managing the crisis. I think that both Kamala Harris and Christian Freeland uh, are very capable, qualified, and uh, people expect them to do a good job. But it shouldn't take that. We have never had a woman prime minister who has been elected. Obviously, mm-hmm. Kim Campbell uh, was, uh, she, she's a good example of when a party got into trouble. She was named by her party as leader, and then the Conservatives were really wiped out and left with just two seats in uh, in the subsequent election. But we've never had a woman elected prime minister here, nor has there been a woman elected in the United States. In fact, the vast majority of countries in the world uh, have never had a woman leader. And right now, there are only about 16 out of the more than 100 countries in the world who have an elected woman in an executive office. So um, I'd like to see more women in the top job and not just thrown in when there's a crisis uh, and expected to try to clean it up. Peggy, you know, you mentioned, you know, that it's rare to, to this day, but I'm wondering if we're a little bit behind in North America, because I Think back to somebody like uh, Margaret Thatcher, for example. There have been exceptions, but is is it something that we're behind maybe uh, other areas across the world? Well, Canada is 61st in the world, according to the Interparliamentary Association, for the representation of women in Parliament. That that meaning that uh, 60 other countries have better representation of women. So, yes, I would argue uh, we are behind uh, many other countries. Um, and and yes, there are standouts. There are Angela Merkel in Germany, mm-hmm. um, more recently Jacinta Ardern in New Zealand. Margaret Thatcher, of course, is a pioneer. Um, and and there, they have Golda Meir. There have been other women elected, but they are a rarity. And, you, you know, you can almost count them on your fingers. That's how few there have been. 
And yet, if you look at, for example, during the pandemic, how countries that do have women elected as leaders have fared, it's not 100%, but many of them have done remarkably well. They've been calm, they've listened to science, they've acted early, and their country has fared better than uh, many others uh, in, in the pandemic. And in fact, if you look at some of the countries that are, are governed by so-called strongman rulers, um, I think of the U.S., for example, Brazil, um, uh, Turkey, they have fared less well. And so it makes you wonder about governance during a period of crisis. Mm -hmm. You know, I know there are people sitting out there, well, shouldn't it just be about the best person for the job? It shouldn't matter the sex. And that's 100% the the right thing for sure. But women have never been given that opportunity to be even considered as the best person for the job, have they? Uh, Well, yes, I agree with you. It should be the best person for the job. And unfortunately... Many women who are the best person get excluded. Yeah, that's what They're, I mean. The, yeah, I, I'm agreeing with you. I, I think, you know, it, it's not that people intentionally set out to discriminate, mm-hmm. but we have a natural tendency as people to have more confidence in people like us. So we have networks of people like us. And so if you're looking to hire someone or if you're looking to elect someone, there's a tendency to to be more insular in in that choice, and so what I'm advocating is that we need we need to get out of our comfort zone and put the net a little wider. Because if you really are looking for the best person, they may not be somebody you know uh, when it comes to hiring. And in an election, it may be someone who's not your typical stereotype of a politician. What, you know, what do you think as far as the future? Is this something that we have to start introducing and actively perhaps fostering younger women, whether it's the junior high and high school levels, to say, okay, listen, this could be a potential career path for you that you may not have thought of, uh, you know, coming up through the ranks of school? Uh, well, you're absolutely right that it is something we need to engage with students on in the school system. In fact, I... I'm one of the instructors in a course at Ryerson called Women in the House, where uh, we we have young women students who are interested in politics, and we help familiarize them with the political process, and they get mentored by a woman MP. Uh, I think there are a lot of young women, uh, and women generally, who would be interested in running for political office, but... Studies show that they are less likely than a man to just step up and present themselves. It often takes several requests for someone, for a woman to say, okay, I'll do this. Women tend to self-select out, even if they're interested. So what I'm advocating is that political parties need to have measures in place that actively recruit uh, women and a diverse range of candidates who who make sure that in a nomination race, which is often the big barrier for a woman to get into politics, that they they don't just go to the first person who puts up their hand, but that they have a strong nomination race with a diverse range of candidates. I'm a former member of parliament. 
And if the riding association I ran in had not done that, uh, I wouldn't have been elected because mm-hmm. the first person who put up their hand would have just won the nomination. But because they insisted on diversity in the nomination race, I had to fight and win the nomination and then win election in an election campaign. But it at least allowed me a fair shot at doing that. So that would be a huge step forward. Agree, Peggy. And you know what you said, it. you touched on it earlier, you know, to be able to see someone like me for women, for young girls coming up the ranks, to see a woman in these higher profile jobs, I think is going to be crucial. And we're starting to see it now. Thank you so much for your perspective this morning. Thank you. Take care. Have a good day. You too. That's Peggy Nash, Senior Advisor to the Dean of Arts at Ryerson University. 617, time now for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Come visit the largest concrete-built condos in the city. Well, it looks like that single vehicle incident that we thought was eastbound Stony Trail is actually westbound Stony Trail at 88th Street Southeast. And it does look like emergency crews are now on scene for that. So it was off to the right shoulder, but with a cruise on scene, expect to see that right lane shut down. It is causing just a small slowdown. Otherwise, though, Deerfoot and Glenmore, Crowchild Trails, they're all sitting delay-free. McLeod Trail... That's still about a 20-minute drive from Highway 22X into downtown. Just be aware of that ongoing bridge work north of Heritage Drive and that bumpy bridge deck. Already earning PC Optimum points on groceries and health and beauty? Well, you can earn even faster when you fuel up at S1 Mobile Stations. Visit PCOptimum.ca for details. For the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Brady Howard. 909 on the morning news. According to a new study, the federal government is potentially wasting more than $22 billion of the nearly $82 billion in COVID recession spending because the assistance is not being adequately, adequately targeted to those in need. To discuss, we're joined by Executive Vice President of the Fraser Institute, Jason Clemens. Good morning to you, Jason. Good morning. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Now, of that money, $22 billion, that's a huge number. Where is it going that you considered, uh, consider it to be wasteful? Sure. So we looked at dependent uh, children. Uh, We also looked at dependent spouses that were getting served. Uh, And critically, in both of those groups, they would have been better off with the benefit that they got from CERB uh, versus when they were working in 2019. So it was a narrow group of people uh, getting CERB. Uh, We also looked at students getting uh, the student benefit for those students who are not eligible for CERB. Uh, We looked at the one-time payment for seniors, and we looked at the one-time payment uh, for families who receive the Canada Child Benefit. And so in all of those cases, what we did is um, only look at families that had $100,000 of income in 2019. And then for seniors, we looked at those that were not eligible for the low-income supplement to try to get at the extent to which these payments could be being made uh, to families that have substantial income. Uh, and unfortunately, because the government didn't have criteria about whether the recipients are dependents or whether there's been a change in household income, um, what we found is that there's a significant amount of money that is potentially going to people whose need is at the very least questionable. I think we can all agree at the at the start, the government did its best to try and get the money out quickly to people who were in need. But, uh, you know, as I look at the information that you released this morning, uh, you know, talking about how the money should go to people who are actually in need should replace lost income, not pay, make people better off than they were before the recession. So do you think the government did a good job at the start, but they just really needed to, you know, lock in and focus in on where that money was going and, and try to redefine things better? 
So I think it's a great question. So I think at the front end, obviously, uh, this came, you know, the whole pandemic emerged quite quickly and obviously then the recession. Um, I think we would have been far better served as taxpayers um, and, and indeed just more generally from a policy perspective if we had used the EI system because it's an existing system with existing processes and just made tweaks to EI. Uh, unfortunately, when you try to create multiple new programs on the fly, it, it's almost inevitable that you're going to make mistakes. Now, I think that's fair enough for, let's say, March and April, but we're now five, almost six months later, and we haven't made any changes to those programs except to expand them. And so um, my sympathy, so to speak, for, for uh, the prime minister's office um, is waning because they don't seem to have learned any lessons or perhaps they're just not interested in learning lessons about being effective in providing assistance rather than just being expedient. Well, Jason, though, we've also uh, seen the a change up to uh, transitioning to EI, which is uh, starting in the next month or so, bringing it from 2000 to 1600 effectively, $400 per week. Are you suggesting that that move perhaps should have been made a few months ago? Well, I, I think from the get-go what we should have used is EI as the foundation for the various programs that have been, have been announced, whether it was the student program or CERB. Um, again, because it's an established program. And now I think the transition to EI that they've roughly announced, uh, I think it's really going to be um, one of those situations where the devil's in the details, um, particularly when it comes to eligibility and how they're going to deal with some difficult circumstances in terms of getting the balance between expanding the eligibility for EI while at the same time protecting the integrity of the program. Do you think there's any way of, you know, going back now, uh, taking a step back and trying to get some of that money from those who you say that, you know, it was per- perhaps wasteful and, and not necessary for some of those people who were receiving the money? Uh, unfortunately, no. I, I think it would be quite inappropriate to try to change the rules of the game six, seven, eight months later. I mean, these are people who have not done anything wrong. The, the federal government created a program uh, it had a limited amount of criteria by which to determine eligibility. Uh, and again, unfortunately, there's a lot of people who are eligible, legally and quite rightly eligible for these benefits, uh, whose need is questionable. So I, I just I don't see that there's any way to recoup this. What I hope at the very least is that we're learning some lessons because we're now about to have a federal government announce its own speech and prevention, uh, potentially a budget that they themselves have characterized as potentially transformative of the Canadian economy. I would hope that we're learning lessons in particular, you know, we have families, particularly single parent families who've been laid off, who are in extraordinary circumstances and they're not getting enough assistance. Mm. At the same time, we clearly have young people whose income has increased by 300% who live in affluent households, whose income hasn't been affected at all by COVID and the recession. Um, that disparity between providing assistance to those genuinely in need versus, uh, again, I would view it as a waste of public resources. Uh, I would hope, again, at the very least, that we're learning some lessons as we move forward. Jason, let's talk about the uh, Canada Child Benefit and the uh, one-time top-up. It is listed that one in four dollars of the CCB top-up is estimated to have gone to families with household incomes of at least $100,000 in 2019. But to play devil's advocate, maybe one or both of those parents found themselves out of work during the pandemic. Wouldn't that be basically impossible to tell, even if we look at last year's uh, tax returns? 
No, in fact, sorry, it's a great point. In fact, one of the things we talk about consistently is had the federal government just added a question that said, how has household income changed this year? Like that, that's all the federal government would have had to have done on the CC, or the, the Canada Child Benefit. Um, similarly, if you look at the SERB benefit or the student benefit, it's a simple question. Um, and But again, unfortunately, the federal government, and, and I think more specifically the Prime Minister's office, uh, because I do think Canadians should be quite proud of our Department of Finance. I, I think it's world-class. It's one of the best in the industrialized world. I think this is more an issue with the Prime Minister's office, that they made a decision that it was more important to be expedient uh, than to be effective. Thanks for this this morning, Jason. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much. That's Jason Clemens, Executive VP at the Fraser Institute. Yeah, incredible stuff. And like to your point, you know, when you when uh, something's happening that's uh, so d- detrimental, something we've never experienced, you're going to throw cash at it. You're going to try to make sure everybody's... Mm-hmm. The, d- the devil is in the details, Truly. as we did here. Um, but in, in the end... I guess we'll see in the next couple of years how large those numbers are when we're paying it down nationally. Well, and even provincially, uh, Premier Jason Kenney yesterday painting a pretty grim financial picture for our province. UCP government uh, say they will release their first quarter numbers today for the 2020-2021 fiscal year. And Kenney says Alberta is dealing with the biggest deficit in the province's history by what he calls... A country mile. Country mile. And I think we know uh, that's uh, quite the distance. Um, Kenny also adds that revenue is more than $10 billion lower than expected. That's uh, certainly not going to be helping. Hey, before we let you go, just wanted to uh, say congratulations to her honor, the Honorable Salma Lakani, who was sworn in yesterday as uh, the new um, Lieutenant Governor here in Alberta, 19th. And she becomes the first, oh, geez. Uh, proud Ishmaeli Muslim who's offered long-standing service to uh, a number of organizations. She becomes, I believe, the first Muslim lieutenant governor, uh, not just in Alberta, but a- across the country. Good stuff there. 917. Time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. You will find a home that fits your lifestyle. Well, fantastic news on northbound Deerfoot. That collision we had approaching 16th Avenue is now cleared up. So we're all good in both the north and southbound directions of Deerfoot through the northeast. Over in the northwest, though, it's still pretty busy on the southbound exit ramp from Stony Trail to eastbound 16th Avenue. Construction has intermittent ramp closures there. So it's a little bit slow of a couple of extra minutes. Also, if you're heading through the Bridalwood and Somerset areas in the southwest, construction on westbound 162nd Avenue, there's right lane closure between 6th Street and Summercrest Street that'll be in place until 3.30 this afternoon. Don't settle for anything less than 99% coverage. With TELUS, you get far better mobile coverage in Alberta than with Shaw's Freedom Network. Visit telus.com slash network. For the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Brady Howard. Well, there is a collision up in the northeast impacting Beddington Trail and Harvest Hills Boulevard. Luckily, not causing a major delay, just a little bit of a distraction as you head through with the flashing lights. Through the southeast, watch for a right lane closure on southbound 52nd Street at 23rd Avenue. That'll be going until 3 this afternoon. Speed's also down to 50. And through the southwest, construction delays at 162nd Avenue between 6th Street and Summercrest Street. You're going to see a westbound right lane closure there until 7 this evening. Don't settle for less than 99% coverage. With TELUS, you get far better mobile coverage in Alberta than with Shaw's Freedom Network. Visit telus.com slash network. For the 770 CHQR traffic helicopter, I'm Brady Howard.
On day three of their convention, Republicans faced a turbulent reality of emergencies facing America. Vice President Mike Pence headlining the event, overshadowed, though, by another police shooting. With all the details, we're joined once again this morning by Global's Washington correspondent, Reggie Cicchini. Hi, Reggie. Good morning. Uh, You know, it really was interesting to watch with the turmoil on the streets of Wisconsin. Not a word about the latest shooting of an unarmed black man other than to say lawlessness will not be tolerated. So is that really a tone deaf or is that just a continuation of the message? Look, it's a continuation of the message and a way to kind of ensure that the base uh, and the president still remain on the same page. You'll notice that Mike Pence portrayed everything going on across America right now, uh, like you said, as lawlessness and uh, as kind of... uh, a faction of this radical left that that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris represent, uh, but it neglected to discuss the underlying issues here, uh, where that there are uh, racial tensions in this country and police are playing into that. Instead, you have Mike Pence saying that they stand with that thin blue line. That uh, nothing to see here to a certain extent attitude. And and we have been, uh, by the way, Reggie, slammed on this radio station by saying, you know, why don't you talk about some of the positives and uh, focus on the, the, the great things that are happening at the RNC. But the fact is, the same way that, uh, you know, BLM was sort of glossed over, the coronavirus talked about in past tense, and I'm looking at the numbers here, it looks like, if not today, next few days, over 6 million cases will roll on through in the U.S. Is that right? It is true. And, you know, just to go back to that original point, it's also fair to point out that, you know, as we talked about the Democratic National Convention, people were, you know, concerned and complaining and criticizing that we weren't being critical enough. And now they're complaining that we're being too critical. But at the end of the day, this Republican National Convention has offered a revisionist history of the actual realities that have happened underneath uh, Donald Trump. And you're right, glossing over the coronavirus pandemic to either talk about it in past tense or diminish the the severity of it uh, doesn't do any good when you're, you know, looking at the potential for the 180,000th victim uh, any day now. And you're right, these these cases that are going to go over 6 million. You know, we heard Mike Pence talk about America being a land of miracles and that there could be a vaccine by the end of the year. That's simply just factually wrong. Scientists say that it is not going to be ready uh, until next year. You know, what struck me too, Reggie, was talking about how, you know, what's happening on the streets right now. This is Joe Biden's America. Well, all this is happening on Donald Trump's watch. Exactly. And it goes to that picture that the Republicans are trying to paint that President Trump is this law and order president, but neglecting the fact that these crises have been underway in this country since the president took office more than three and a half years ago. And little has been done to deal with it until it was the final push before an election. Uh, So they're trying to say that anything that does continue on potentially into a Democratic leadership will therefore be a Democratic problem. And this becomes a messaging problem for the Republicans who are really trying to expand their base and draw in something like uh, the, the black vote in America, which President Trump simply doesn't have on his side, uh, and ignoring the fact that there is an issue here in this country with the way that black Americans are treated at the hands of police, uh, that he's simply just looking past that message. So, you know, today is uh, the big one, you know, talking about the, we know who's speaking tonight, it's President Donald Trump. What can we expect? Because what can be said that hasn't been said already? Do you think this is going to be one of those whoppers of a speech? Well, I mean, look, this this is a make or break speech for the president because, you know, we are 70-ish days out from the election. The lead into him will be Joe, uh, Ru- rather Rudy Giuliani and Ivanka Trump. So we know that the what the message is going to be kind of giving the, the podium to the president. Uh, he's likely going to continue his attacks uh, on Joe Biden. We've seen the president out numerous days in a row uh, simply just talking about uh, things of the past that simply may not be true and boasting of, of legislative wins that mostly are at the hands of an executive order. Uh, this is still going 
going to be a big moment for the president. He will speak before a thousand people at the White House, while protests likely take place on the outside of the White House. It is worth noting here that there is a chance the president may not actually give the acceptance speech tonight. Advisors say depending on what the damages look like from Hurricane Laura, the president may be more inclined to deal with that than his speech. Will Donald Trump be fully, uh, you know, it, he won't go off the cuff, I'm thinking, correct? They, they just can't let him do that tonight, can they? Well, I mean, look, he's using the White House, which goes against uh, norms for past conventions. There are uh, have been active administration members taking part in this political campaign, which has uh, breached the Hatch Act. So it is possible the president could go off the cuff. Look, when he just his thank you speech earlier this week, when he, you know, when the roll call went through, was supposed to be a quick walkout and thank you. And it went to an hour long airing of grievances many of which were factually incorrect. So if the president doesn't stick to his prompter tonight, it is going to cause more news on Friday morning. Hearing now we uh, headlines in the past few weeks about the U.S. Postal Service. You, you got to worry about them botching mail-in ballots, thus from President Donald Trump, and now with USPS moving to move uh, back to 100%. We're now hearing that uh, the president is now saying that it could be the election workers that could be the issue when it comes to counting these mail-in ballots. Is that correct? Well, I mean, look, the president is doing what he can. If, if the USPS has pushed back to say, look, we can handle mail-in balloting. It's, you know, election day would roughly be 75% of one regular day during uh, the, the regular year for mail delivery. So he's, he's losing the battle that the USPS won't be able to deal with this properly. So he's now trying to find a different boogeyman to say, if I don't win, it's because of X, Y, and Z. Not saying, if I don't win, it's because of my own policy platform that failed with the American public. The president is simply trying to cherry-pick facts to say that, uh, you know, if if he happens to lose on November 3rd, that there's got to be a reason for it that's something other than himself. If a few people would like us to focus on the positive coming out of this convention, what would you say to that? Well, I mean, look, the, the Republican Party is doing what they can to ensure that they are unified and solid behind their base. This is not the Republicans of the past. This is the new Trump Republican Party, and they're trying to show that there is unity within the GOP. The president has also been portrayed as somebody who can be empathetic and who he is uh, a champion for equality based on uh, the legislation that has to do with opportunity zones. Uh, his press secretary gave a speech last night talking about how the president called her after she underwent breast cancer surgery. So there are people trying to say, look, the president president does have a soft tone and that does need to be acknowledged. The problem is sometimes that bombastic tone and that rhetoric that the president uses can oftentimes create just such a sharp edge. So we, we uh, finish up the RNC tonight, uh, the big night for the uh, Republican National Convention. What is, is the next major step ahead when you mentioned like 68, 70 days in the election? What are we going to see from both parties uh, moving ahead past today? Well, I will point out that there will be counter-programming to President Trump tonight. Kamala Harris will give a speech around the same time on the coronavirus pandemic. Beyond this, it looks to uh, the, the debates that are going to take place, three of them sometime between now uh, and, and the end of October, uh, pitting President Trump up against Vice President Biden. Uh, highly anticipated deba uh, debates. Uh, we're waiting to see how those are going to take place. Typically, they have an audience, likely not going to happen this time. Those will be the next moments to watch outside of the jabs between the two men now over the next three months. Well, highly anticipated will be the speech from Donald Trump this evening. We'll check in with you tomorrow about that. Thanks, Reggie, for your time. Thank you. That's Reggie Cicchini, Global's Washington correspondent. Yeah, you know, if you, if you didn't see any of the RNC, perhaps tonight would be the night to tune in. Uh, yeah, it should be very interesting to see exactly what the president has to say. You know, and I do think that, you know, this is going to be, and I, I think that he has to address, if, you, if you're a supporter of uh, Donald Trump in the U.S., I think you still want to hear something about BLM. I mean, this is exploding. And again, I think, you know, yeah. if, if, if you're a fan of the NBA, maybe that's what caught your attention. Maybe now you're going to say, OK, well, what is our government going to be doing about this? 
yeah, you think about it, it has to be Kenosha and, and in Wisconsin we're talking about. But in the end, this is a national issue that has been going on. This is not an isolated incident. No. This is not, uh, you know, we're talking even George Floyd, uh, you know, a, a couple of months ago. This has been going on forever. And, um, you know, I think that as an American... I would, you know, want to hear what my leader would say about this. Some things. It has to be brought up. It has to be part of the discussion one way or the other, right? And I think you're right. The fact that it, it has been going on and, you know, since George Floyd, not really much else has been done or accomplished in terms of the fight for equality and, and what the protests are all about. So you can see why the NBA players are saying, you know, enough's enough. Yeah, nevertheless, yeah, we'll uh, check in and uh, do a wrap-up tomorrow morning, I believe, with Jackson Prosco mm-hmm. uh, about the uh, final night of the RNC. It is 717. Uh, right now, time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Life happens at hellowestdistrict.com. Deerfoot Trail out of the Northeast is still a decent drive southbound. You're looking at about nine minutes off the QE2 from Airdrie down towards Memorial. Northbound lanes out of the Southeast, just some slight building volume approaching Anderson Road, but you're really only sitting at about 11 minutes from Stony Trail up towards 17th Avenue. So things still moving fine. Same with McLeod Trail. That's an 18-minute drive northbound from Highway 22X into the downtown core. Memorial Drive heading off of Deerfoot Trail, nice and smooth towards that 4th Avenue flyover. Keep in mind, there is still that two-way traffic in effect between the Peace Bridge and the Center Street Bridge, though, and heading off of Crowchild on the west end of downtown Memorial, Bow Trail, 17th Avenue, all moving smoothly out towards 14th Street. Already earning PC Optimum points on groceries and health and beauty? Well, you can earn even faster when you fuel up at SON Mobile Stations. Visit pcoptimum.ca for details. For the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Brady Howard.